Well, folks, the Lord's coming back. And as we're going through the book of Revelations, it's incredible to see the signs of the times. Now, if you've been in the church a while, you've heard me from time to time say, look, if you have some friends that are skeptics, just tell them, look, I'll tell you the future right now on three events. Now, to be able to predict the future on one event is incredible. Now, if you were to say, I have a prediction that there's going to be an earthquake in California sometime this next year, you'd say, big deal. I mean, anybody can predict that. It's going to happen most likely. But if you were to say, there's going to be an earthquake on October 18th, now, it's two bits of information. That would be pretty, pretty amazing. But if you were to say there's going to be an earthquake October 18th at 3.05 exactly. Now, i got to take my hat off to you. That's, that's a pretty amazing uh, prediction you're making. Because when you add another element, it makes it all the harder for that to come to pass. Now, the Lord's given us a lot of prophecies, hundreds, literally thousands of prophecies in the Scripture. Now, most of them have been fulfilled. Over three of them, over 300 of them, just in the first coming of Christ. Having to be born in Bethlehem, be born of a virgin. Boy, that narrows things down right there. Talks about where he would be living in the different spaces, how he would leave uh, Bethlehem and go to Egypt for a time and then come back. And all these prophecies, so specific. And then, of course, talks about his death, how specifically he would be put to death. And by a group of people, the Psalms talks about his dogs, which was the coin name the Jews had for the Roman soldiers, the Roman dogs. Amazing prophecies. So most of the prophecies have been fulfilled. There's another large group of prophecies that are going to be fulfilled, but it's after the rapture of the church. So they really don't apply if you're a Christian here tonight. Um, it's sort of like you just want to know about it because it is the future and it does dictate how we live today, but more it's for the people who are going to be here during the rapture or during the tribulation period. But there are a few prophecies that I believe the Christians will most likely see at least begin to see the shadow of them. One of them, Daniel talks about how there's going to be the revival of the Roman Empire. Now, if you look in history, there are four ruling world empires. The first one was the Babylonians, and the Bible says they would be destroyed by the Medes and the Persians, which they were. The Medes and the Persians would be destroyed by the Greeks, which they were. The Greeks, the Bible says, would be destroyed by the Romans, which they were. But the Romans, it says, they wouldn't be destroyed that they would fade out of the picture, but then they would fade back into the picture. It's amazing to look at our clothes style, to our haircuts, the type of entertainment we enjoy, and then, of course, the sexual scene of Rome, how it's come back worldwide. Saw a thing the other night. There's a new gladiator show now. More violent than the first gladiator show. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's what they had during the Roman times. Sure, it's going to be entertaining. So now, that Roman Empire is supposed to be revitalized within ten-nation confederation, and from that, the Antichrist himself is going to come from. Now, in 19... 
90 or 89, late in 89, the European community said they're going to form an alliance. The European community. We said, we've been saying it's going to happen for years. But 12 nations said they're coming together. Hold it. The Bible said 10 nations. So I said, for the last three years, listen, it's going to be 10 nations. They say it's 12 nations. I'll guarantee you it will not come together or if it does come together with more than 10 nations, it'll quickly dissolve down to 10 nations. So here they've been saying that 1993 would be the year they're going to get things together. And here's the latest uh, on the situation, because there is 12 nations and they need, there need to be some dropping out. Now, if you remember Margaret Thatcher, who was the president there in England, all of a sudden she's in power the next day, boom, she's out of power. Why? The day before she had said, we're not going to be a part of the European common market. All of a sudden, she's out of power, out of the presidency. She got impeached literally in a day. She comes back into her office. It's emptied out. All her stuff's outside. I mean, it was unreal. The world's like going, no way. And here, um, she's being interviewed by Barbara Walters. And she's saying, I'm trying to wake up out of this dream. I can't believe it's happened. I mean, all I said is we're not going to be, we're not going to hook our banking systems up with the European common market because we don't want to be a part of it. And the next thing I know, I'm out of power. Because there's radical spiritual forces happening. Well, England's stepping out again. And they just pulled out, so now it's down from 12 down to 11. France is also showing uh, that their interest is to get out also. So there would be down to 10 nations. But notice what it says here. It could derail the derive to European unity that only a few months ago seemed to be an inedible, inevitable as tomorrow's sunrise. How could something so important have happened with so little warning? And why are elected officials who are uh, stake their careers on the currency arrangement known as the European monetary system seemingly powerless to prevent it's meltdown. They're saying here, I can't believe England pulled out that quick and so quickly by them pulling out, it looks like the whole thing's going to fold. Something we've been working for years to get this European uh, monetary system working and all of a sudden it's falling apart. The Bible tells us that the Antichrist is going to be the one pulling this together. The very first newspaper article coming out on this and uh, the guy said, looking at all the European countries and how they're so individualistic, the guy said, I don't see how they could all come together unless one person could rise up to bring unity amongst them all. I'm like going, my goodness, what, what pages of the Bible on this? I mean, this is not the newspaper, it's the scriptures. Get your morning devotional just by reading this. It's so identical to the Bible. It's amazing how things are coming together. I've Got the Time magazines here. The hurricanes, like never before. The destruction. One lady uh, was vacationing in uh, Florida, got hit by the hurricane there, and says, Honey, let's get out of here and go to Hawaii and relax. They went over to Kauai and got hit by the other earthquake, uh, hurricane. They got hit by both. So uh, here's the talking about the plagues that are hitting the world. And it's worldwide plagues, you know. The plagues before the century, you could almost isolate them to a country. 
Not anymore. You can take almost any one of the major plagues in there and every uh, country in the world is being plagued by it. Here's famine. I mean, it's amazing. Here we are, and I, you can literally get on a plane and go almost anywhere in the world within a 24-hour period. You would think, I mean, somebody could stack up a few airplanes with enough food to go feed people on the other side of the country, and we could do it without any sweat. But here are people that are literally, not, not thousands, but millions of people starving yearly. And the Bible says that there would be this. And then we go on and talks about wars and the different rumors of the different wars. Uh, incredible, the signs of the time. And this is, this is current Time magazines that I'm looking at here. Here's a funny one. It says, The Doomsday Plan. How the U.S. government secretly prepared to save the president and survival from World War III. Um, this is the August issue, just a month ago. Um, man's thoughts and how they are to escape uh, the inevitable doom of planet Earth that the Bible's talked about. Folks, the Lord is coming back. You can write it down. There's going to be ten nations getting together. From that, the Antichrist is going to rise up. From that, he's going to make a monetary system that will be uh, taken under the entire world. The whole world is getting ready to have an incredible financial collapse. I'm afraid the news for the future is not good if you plan on sticking around here. I don't. The Lord's coming back. My future looks great. He's coming back for me. He said He wouldn't go away unless He planned on preparing a place for us. And again, Jesus says that you've got to either love money or you love Him. There's got to be a choice. So if the whole earth collapses and there's no money around, it doesn't bother me. I didn't lose anything. I've got my God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the thought of me losing my car or my house or uh, the different financial things I have, who cares? I don't care. I have no hope in it. I have no joy in it. It's simply to keep the rain off my head and, you know, God will protect me. I, I don't need it. We, we don't, we don't, if your stake and your hope is in the things that you possess, then you've got a very unhappy future ahead. But if your hope, as it says in Peter, is fully resting upon the second coming of Jesus Christ, that is your hope, it says there in chapter 1 of Peter, is fully resting upon that, then you have no worry. And you can see all the way through history when economic times are bad, people's hearts turn towards God. So I'm excited. The sooner the earth begins to fill this financial crunch, the happier I am. Because people are going to be more open to hear the gospel. And that's what we're here for. To be a light to the world. To be a salt into the earth. So uh, economic bad times, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, like anybody, I like comfort. I like the idea of having a paycheck come in and being able to buy the things that bring enjoyment. Hey, great. The Bible says God's given us all good things to enjoy. But your heart can't be upon that. The Lord is coming back. The signs of the times are very clear. God's given us the book of Revelations to stir people up in the last days because the Bible says people are going to grow cold towards God in these last days. They're going to be like the people put by the weeds. They're going to get choked out with the cares of this life, the cares of riches, and the cares, it says, for other things. Choke out the Word of God 
in people's lives. And there's no doubt in my mind that there are people here tonight who are not putting Christ first in their life. And if they say they're born again, it's really just a little flicker of light still in their heart saying, that's about all I have right now as far as God's concerned is a point in time when I ask Him into my life. As far as right now, a vital relationship, it's not there. And God, I believe, has given us the book of Revelations to say, wake up, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, the Bible says God's spirits in the world testifying to you that there is a time of judgment coming. It's appointed every man to die once and after that judgment. The Bible says the soul who sinneth shall surely die. And so again, uh, wake up to the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Last week in the book of Revelations, chapter 4, we come to the last couple of verses there. In the last verse, where they begin to sing, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, or literally for your good pleasure, they exist, and notice, were created. God has made you to have a relationship with Him. And not just a relationship, but a pleasing relationship. I suppose if you want to use the word relationship in a general fashion, well, I guess the devil and God Himself have a relationship. It's an enemy relationship, but it's a relationship. God wants you to have a relationship where you are pleasing to Him. Now, God, the Bible says, created the world in such a way that we can understand all the attributes of God, even His, even his Godhead, seeing God in the Trinity, but also to be able to see how to have a relationship with God through the world around us. Now, we have been created in the image of God. Now, why do we have children? Because we're masochistic. We want to know. Uh, <laughs> want to torture ourselves. Uh, it may seem that way sometimes. No, we have children to bring pleasure to us. To see that little life created. We have that desire to create that little life. And to see that life grow. Now, as we see that life grow, we, want, we don't want that life growing away from us. We want that little life growing towards us. And as that mind begins to uh, grow, and as their bodies begin to grow, as their vocabulary begins to grow... We desire to begin raising that child right from birth in a way that would be pleasing to us, that would be pleasing to others. And God has made all of us that we would grow in relationship with Him, to have an intimate relationship with Him. And every single person on planet Earth is made with a soul. And that soul is empty, and it'll never be fulfilled up until Christ is the Lord of that person's soul. Your spirit and God's spirit living together. Now the Bible says when a person becomes born again, that God's spirit literally comes and lives in their life. God wants to come and live in you. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you feel an absence. You've tried to fill it up. You know, you go with the relationship. And because man's created in the image of God, for a moment, for a time, in a very small way, man can fill that void in another man. But not the depths of it. 
So you start that relationship out, and wow, you have this love and this desire, and boy, I want to get you a car, and I want to buy you some candies, and I want to get you a flower, and I want you to go everywhere with me. I want you to experience everything with me. I want to be with you all the time, and the absence of that person, even for an hour, is like, oh, I miss you so much. And it's really horrible if they live in a different city. $400, a month phone bill. Talking to them nonstop. Oh, my goodness. But that relationship, because we're in a world that's dead, and man is dead, and because of this, the second law of thermodynamics, everything is falling apart, that relationship cannot maintain that feeling of that void. It'll begin to die out. And so what happens is eventually that relationship eventually will not fulfill any void in your life. If you're married here tonight, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A few months after you're married, and usually it's two or three months, that person's not filling one area of your life. There's no fulfillment from that person in your life at all. Because we can't. As much as one person wants to meet that other person's need, we can't. We cannot fill another person's life. You see your little child. Come home. Daddy, 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 ah! You know, it's like for that time when before their minds developed. <laughs> you're their everything. You're their hero. You're the strongest. You're the smartest. But then they start looking around and they realize, man, I wish I had a dad like that over there. I had a little girl tell me that the other day. Spanked her, of course. <laughs> no, not really. Only kidding. It's amazing how we can look and we can go from one relationship to the next. So the people get in this marriage relationship and it doesn't meet the need. Let's have a kid. Oh, this kid's meeting my need. And then it doesn't meet the need anymore. Let's have another kid. Let's have another relationship. Let's have another house. Let's get another job. Let's get another car. Man trying to fill that void in himself that will never be filled without a relationship with God. Then the person comes to know the Lord and, oh, that's it. I found the fulfillment that I need. But then what happens? We find in the earlier uh, part of Revelations that people can lose that first love with Christ. He is the answer. Christ is what you need. He is that fulfillment. But yet, it does take an obedience on your part. You can't have a one-way relationship. You could have the most perfect wife in the world. But if you're a jerk, you're going to have a bad relationship. You could have a perfect husband. Your husband could be Jesus Christ himself. But if you're unwilling to listen to Him, if you're unwilling to submit to Him, if you're unwilling to uh, talk to Him and be a part of His life, you're off doing your own thing, you'll have a horrible marriage. And so you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and He is perfect. He is that fulfillment. But if you don't come to listen to Him and submit to Him, you'll start feeling an emptiness in your life. This time it's not a lack of fulfillment. It's a lack of of being able to accomplish God's will for your life. The emptiness you feel now is not the need for an answer. Although a lot of times people will start running off to other religions. The Mormons, they look so 
clean. Well, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses are so diligent. The Hare Krishnas, you know, they don't kill any little thing. They eat wheat germ and, you know, they, oh, those songs. And I love tambourines and, you know, whatever. They really accept me there. And they have a place, they gave me a mat I can sleep on or something. You know, I don't know. Some people can start going to that road, but they'll quickly end that because it's totally futile. But what happens is a person in a relationship with God, they have a relationship, but they're not fulfilling God's plan for their life, and they'll fill that emptiness again. Why? Because God has created us, and that's why we exist. But it says He created us to bring Him pleasure, to walk in His will. And until you've come to submit every area of your life, you will always experience a lacking in your life of not fulfilling all that God has for you. Until you come to be obedient with your eye and your ear and your feet and your hands and your mind and your heart. Until you completely come and say, Lord, I surrender to do things your way. You're always going to experience the Holy Spirit in you grieving, feeling that there's something more. And what is that? It's coming in complete line to bring pleasure to God every moment of the day. And so we see in chapter 5 that John has another re- revelation and he saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on back and sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. Literally, it's it's convulsing. He started crying, but then he just started convulsing. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lion of the tribe of Judah, yes, but something more, a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. What is this scroll? And why was John convulsing with, with weeping? The scroll was the title deed for earth. In the Jewish days, when remember when they came into the land, when Joshua brought them into the land, he gave everybody a section of land. That was their land and their family's land. In the the Jewish mindset, you couldn't own a piece of land unless it was your family's piece of land. And so if somebody hit some hardship times and for some reason had to sell their land, it really wasn't a selling. Because every seventh year, it would be the year of Jubilee and everybody's land went back to who it was owned to. Now during that seven-year period, you would have a scroll. Now they don't have books. They didn't know how to bind books. Interesting, just saw a thing the other day, it was an article or something I was reading, and, and uh, it showed today that they still sew books the way they did uh, back when they first started making books. They still have to sew the bindings of them today. 
But they didn't have that capability. They had scrolls. And so if the person owed somebody some money and somebody bought the land and he paid all the debts and if he wanted that land back, he would have to pay this person a certain amount of money or maybe it was some oxen or uh, whatever the deal was. Well, it would be written on the scroll. But as it would be written, it would part of it would be written and then the scroll would be rolled over the part that was written and then it would be sealed. And then the next part of it would be written and it would be rolled on top of it and it would be sealed again. And then they would write on it again and they would do this seven times until it was sealed securely. And then on the outside they would write again what was written on the inside. What it would take. So if it came to pass that somebody, a relative, could buy that person's land back for them, that they would look to see if they could meet those requirements. One, it would have to be a relative. Two, you'd have to have the money to do it or whatever it, the resources to, to handle it. And so John saw this. He, if you notice in one, he, he saw written on the inside and on the back, and there he noticed it had the seven seals on it. And also the emperors in Rome in these days, when they would do their wills, they would do it the same way. And so... Um, he saw the scroll. And what was it? It was the scroll to the title deed of the earth. When God made planet earth, he said to Adam, everything's yours. It's all yours. All the earth is for you to inhabit it, to enjoy it, to rule over it, to rule over every living thing. Well, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Bible tells us that he lost the title deed and it went to Satan himself. One of the uh, titles of Satan is the God of this world. He holds the title deed. He has the power and the control. He has free reign here. You'd often wish God would just sort of reach out of heaven and just squash him like you would a little gnat and just get the devil out of here. Well, God, for his own sovereign reasons, allows the devil to exist. But because he was able to deceive Adam and Eve, he deceived them out of the title deed of earth. And so John begins to weep, the thought of Satan always having control here. He sees the title deed and he sees that there's no one who's related, there's no one who has the resources, there's no one who has the power to take that title deed and to make it right. And he's weeping and convulsing over the fact that Satan would always rule and reign and hold people in bondage and torment here. But it doesn't end there. The guy says, hey, quit weeping. There is one. He's of the tribe of Judah. The leader, the conqueror, the king, the lion of that tribe can do it. And when John goes to look up to see who's the lion, it wasn't a lion at all. It was a lamb as had been slain. Or the word there, slain, literally is one that had been slaughtered. Now, no one can see God and live. So again, John is seeing images of Christ and of God and of heaven. My little girl, she came home. I was last Sunday night. I said, "Well, what did you learn tonight?" You know, and and uh, she was telling me, and and. Uh, one of it was, you know, Moses took off his shoes in front of the burning bush. And, and uh, 
she goes, why did he do that? <laughs> now, that's, that's a good question. Why did he take off his shoes? I said, well, what if I took off my shoes right now and put it on your food? She were eating dinner after Sunday night service. She goes, oh, that would be dirty. And I said, yeah. I said, shoes have an, a symbolic meaning of, of, of dirt and of filth. And God's presence entered that burning bush. And therefore, spiritually, God wanted Moses to understand that it was the presence of God and that he was unclean. And that he needed to take off his shoes in a symbolic gesture that he is unclean to stand before the living God. So John can't see God and live. But as he sees him, he sees him as the Lamb of God who had been slain. Now on the outside of that scroll, to the title deed, what would be a requirement? The requirement would be that man would have to be right with God. That man would have to be forgiven of his sins. And we see, just to skip ahead of what we'll look at next week, over in verse 9. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us, bought us out of bondage to God by your blood. And so again, on the outside of that scroll, there would have to be one who was perfect to take away our sins. And we see that Jesus indeed was the one who could meet that requirement. He was the only one. Man cannot redeem himself. You may be here tonight saying, well, I haven't been living a really good Christian life, but I plan on it. You can plan all you want and you will fail every effort you try. You cannot live a godly life. You cannot live a holy life. You cannot live a Christian life. As a matter of fact, you can't even do anything good apart from Christ. There's only one way that man can be right with God, and that is God making man right with Him. And we see that Jesus became a man, and He turned things around. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, He was spirit, soul, and body. He could walk with God every day in the evening and have communion with God face to face. But when He sinned, it changed. Man became body first, then soul, and spirit last. And so today we are governed first by our body needs. People often say, well, I sense the spirit said. It's like, yeah, for every time you sense the spirit, you sense your flesh a million times. My flesh knows when it's hungry and it wants it now. My flesh knows its lust and knows its desires and knows its covetousness. And man, my flesh screams it at me every second of the day. We're sold under this body, as Paul says, as one sold under sin. And there's no way we could change that. Even as Christians, it's a battle like you wouldn't believe to try to live a life governed by God's Spirit where spirit, then soul, and then body is, is, is lived out. It's, it's almost an impossibility. Only as we have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ can we even walk in the Spirit. This is why the Lord says, walk in the Spirit and you just won't fulfill the lust of your flesh. Not that they're not going to be there. They're going to be there. Our lust of our flesh will always be in our bodies until the day we die. 
But God's design was that we would be bought. And so we see in a picture here that the scroll would have to be opened. And there as the scroll would be opened, we would know that it wasn't some accident, you know. The scroll's there and it's sealed up and it's like, oh, it got broken. Does that mean it was fulfilled? No, the scroll would be a very long scroll. Because he would roll a big section up and he would seal it so there would be no accident. For that whole scroll to be opened up, it would probably be several feet long. And each and every time it would have to be a deliberate tear of the wax that would be put on there. And so if anyone ever said, hey, what are you living on this property for? I thought you had to give it up because of your circumstances. You had to sell it. You could bring that scroll out and it would be very big and it would have been once very tightly rolled. Now it would have been opened up and a little wider and a little fatter. And and there's no way the scroll could have been broken unless it was deliberate, unless it took time. And so uh, here we see that Jesus Christ has broken the scroll. He's opened the scroll which was the title deed to you and to me. The Bible says that Satan is the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. And it says before we become Christians that we are a part of his kingdom. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you are living for the devil. Oh, hold on. I'm not into Satan worship. I think that's horrible. I'm not talking about that. Satan comes as an angel of light also. You are living the way He wants you to live. You may not be praying to Satan, but yet you're using the words He wants you to use. The devil uses God's name in vain, and so do you. The devil hates, and now so do you. The devil likes revenge, and so do you. The devil likes to not quite tell the truth, but to tell the truth, but then to change it a little bit to his advantage, which is really lying. And so do you. You're living for him. You're living the way he would live if he was in your shoes. Maybe you're not demon-possessed, but you will be living with the devil and his angels forever in hell. It's a very real reality. Christ has came to set us free. And Jesus says there is one way, one truth, and one life. He said before he'd leave, I don't leave you comfortless, but I leave you the Holy Spirit. John 16, he says he would go into the world and tell people of their sin, that they are sinners, and that they are hurting other people, that they are hurting themselves, that their life is empty, and that it is vain, and that it is separating them from God, their sin is. Also of righteousness, of what's the right thing to do, Every man innately know what's right and what's wrong, but also in that knowledge of righteousness, you know you're not doing it. You know what's right, you know what's wrong, and you're not doing it. You know what righteousness is, and you just can't seem to do it, no matter how hard you try. And then the final, that of judgment. You know that you will have to pay the consequences of every wrong thought, of every wrong motive, of every wrong action, of every wrong deed. That someday you will have to pay a price for every wrong thing you've ever done. And if you really are honest with yourself, you know that's true. That God is speaking to you through His Holy Spirit tonight that you're guilty of your sin, 
that you are a sinner, that you need to be forgiven, and you need to be made right with God. Jesus Christ came, and it says there that he was a lamb who had been as though it were slaughtered. When Christ came, we find in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52, it says that his beard was plucked out. I know sometimes the kids will grab the real, that baby here right in the back of your neck. And oh, I scream. It's like, ah! And I know the skin on your face, so I've been told. i got too much Indian in me. I can't grow anything here. had a mustache. The first five years I was married, I shaved off. Nobody even knew. Do you know anything different? <laughs> shaved off my mustache. You had a mustache? I didn't even know. Everybody kept saying, use some eyeliner and color it a little bit. <laughs> too blonde or something. I don't know. But oh, the pain of that beard being plucked out. But not only was his beard plucked out, but the Romans put a bag over his head. And they, would, they were hitting him, saying, prophesy, who's the one who hits you? Now you know in football sometimes, a guy you'll see a quarterback get hit and hit and hit, and he gets back up, no problem. But then that one time when he's looking over here and somebody somehow, somebody gets up behind him and he can't see it out of his peripheral vision, and boom, he gets hit. And you're like, oh no, it wasn't that hard of a hit, but man, it broke his neck or broke his arm or the guy's unconscious. Why was it? It's because our body has this shock system. When we see something coming in a split second, our whole body is like this spring, and it can take a lot of force if it's prepared for it. But when you get blindsided, you, you can't shock. You can't put that in. And the blunt of it is more than our body can take. And by putting that bag over Jesus' face, they could not tell which way the punch was coming. In Isaiah 52, it tells us that his appearance, the time they were done, it was not even a man's face anymore. His face had so many cuts on it. His eyes were probably swollen shut. His nose and his face was so badly swollen beyond any other man, it says. Beyond, could be translated past an appearance of a man. It didn't look like a man. Now, I've hit my finger with a hammer a few times. And I'll tell you, I know better than to do that. The pain just lasts for such a long. Now, I could not imagine somebody taking a nail, watching them put the nail up to my hand, knowing, you know, reaching into their bag for a nail and my hand's being held down on a piece of wood. And, oh, the agony of just the thought of the few seconds that would go by between the time the nail would get to my hand than to feel that nail go through my hand. But then on top of that, to have my body's weight hanging on nails that are in my hand and in my feet until I'm to die. And having upon my head thorns pressed down in the shape of a crown. Now the Bible tells us that this wasn't God trying to be dramatic. The Bible tells us that there has to be an equal punishment to every sin. And Jesus was perfect. That's the only reason he could ever be that substitute for you. But the Bible tells us that he had to be punished, tortured, beaten to the degree that your sins would be paid for. God, as much as he is a loving God, he is a just God. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And when you sin, the Bible says because we are made by God and we're made in the image of God that when we sin, we don't sin just against man, but we sin against God himself. 
And therefore, the penalty of your sin is eternal separation from God. And so here's John, knowing the title deed to his body, to his own soul, to the soul of every person who's ever lived, to knowing that the wages of every man's sin is death, that we're all going to hell without an intervention. We're all face down, drowning, and we can't get our breath, and we're going down for the third time. And who's going to save us? There's no one around. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ could be that penalty, could be that price, could be the one paid for our sins. And now through Him, the sin, not only the sin can be taken away, but the guilt of that sin, and not only the past sins completely, not just forgiven, but the Bible says taken away, scattered as far as the east to the west, taken our sins, completely taken away, and not only that, but when you ask Christ to come into your life, the Bible says He'll never impute another sin to you. That he'll, the things you do wrong, that He'll discipline you as a father disciplines a child. He chastens every son whom He loves. So I used to think when my sins were forgiven, it was sort of like a chalkboard where God took and sort of put a line through all my sins. But it's like, ah, I'm sort of embarrassed because everybody could still see Him, you know. What's that behind the chalk, you know? Then as I started to un- more about His forgiveness and His grace, it was like somebody took an eraser and sort of erased it off. You know how those chalkboards are? You can still see the, see the writing back behind the, where they tried to scrub so hard to get the chalk off. I thought, oh man, I hope nobody pays attention to that board. It still looks dirty, you know. It still has the chalk on there and you can tell somebody erased quite a bit, you know. But as it was, when you accept Christ, God takes that board and breaks it into a zillion pieces. There's not even a place now to write your sin. God deals with your sin right now as a father deals with a child's sin. So my kids today, they were disobedient. One got out of the seat belt and he stood up in the seat. When I was a kid, we did that all the time. My parents thought it was great, you know. But now you've got to wear a seat belt. So I said, sit down and he didn't sit down. And I told him three times. And I said, man, I'm getting ready to stop. When I do, you're going to get a spanking. No, no, I'm sitting down, I'm sitting down, you know. Too late. So I get him there and he's already crying, you know. And I spanked him. Now, I'm not going to hold that against him. I mean, here he's going off to college. Dad, you mind helping me in college? No way. Remember I told you three times that time when you were three years old to put your seatbelt on. Forget it. You're paying your own way or not going at all. How ridiculous it is to imagine God imputing sin to us now that we're His children. Now that we've believed upon Him and He's come and living in our lives. Believe me, when Christ broke those seals, it wasn't just one little old seal to say, okay, you act right. I'm going to pay attention. Maybe I'll let you go to heaven. Christ redeemed us completely breaking the seven seals, taking care of all the requirements forever. And the Bible says, He who began that good work and you would complete it. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's the author and He will be the finisher of your faith. Do you need forgiveness tonight? Do you need the guilt of your sin taken away? Do you need the certainty of a relationship with Jesus Christ? Let's pray.